Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to look back just briefly in chapter 3. And in chapter 3, you remember in chapter 3, we have the man and the woman in this beautiful setting. We've seen the glory of God and his creation. We've seen man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation. And then he puts them together in this perfect home, in this perfect garden. All their needs are met. They're walking with God in the cool of the day. They're walking with each other. And in chapter 3, who shows up? Uh, Satan. And here he is. He's going to wiggle his way in the form of a serpent and he's going to attack the word of God. He's going to deny the judgment of God. He's going to attack the goodness of God. He's going to lure the man and the woman in and they are going to sin. And in their sin, everything goes horribly wrong. It's all broken. And, and really, this is the answer to why is the world the way that it is? Why is there so much brokenness? Why is there death? Why is all this stuff here? Why is this happening? Well, we know we have an answer that this world is not as it was. It's not as it was intended to be. It's not as it will be one day. That what we know today in our world is a product of sin. And it has affected all of us. And so there's consequences. Sin always has consequences. And we see the judgments of God. But in the midst of God's judgment, what did we see last week in 3.15? Is he's speaking to the serpent and really speaking to Satan who's behind the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. God says there's going to be a struggle. Now there's a conflict. The battle is on. And there's going to be a battle between the people of God and the people of Satan. And there's going to be this struggle. And we see a narrative of conflict as we move through Genesis we're going to see this conflict taking place throughout scripture and so there's going to be a conflict but God also says but I'm going to send someone there's going to be a savior and he's going to conquer Satan and he'll be wounded in the transaction that he himself will die he'll be a sacrifice sacrificial savior that that victory will be achieved by means of sacrifice and so there's the promise of Christ who would come and he would accomplish victory by means of his own death. And really, as God brings judgment upon the man and the woman, there's changes now in their relationship and their relationship to God. But moving out of this, everything points back to that promise. In fact, in verse 20, you see there, uh, he's going to name uh, his wife Eve, and Eve means life. That's pointing back to the promise that, that Adam, there's this recognition in him that I'm, salvation's not going to be something I accomplish. It's going to be by see the woman. And then verse 21, he makes these garments, these coverings for them. What has to happen? There has to be the shedding of blood. We, we see sacrifice there. And sacrifice will now become the sign of the promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 that somebody's going to come. And then what do we see in verses 22 through 24 at the end of the chapter? How are Adam and Eve going to die now? Because they're not going to have immortality. He blocks the way to the tree of life. And now they're going to have to die in faith. They're going to have to die trusting in the promised seed of the woman who would come and die for their sins and for ours. They're, they're going to trust in somebody they've never seen, but they're, they're praying and hoping in, in, in faith that he's coming. Does that sound like us? A group of people who, what do we do? We go to the grave and we die in faith, trusting in someone we've not seen with our eyes. Now, uh, our faith is certainly more clearly delineated. We know the person of Jesus Christ, but Adam and Eve are saved in the same way as you and I, by means of faith. Salvation has always been by means of faith. Their faith was in a Christ, in a Savior who would come. Our faith is in a Savior 
who has come. But what will we see in chapter 4? As we move into chapter 4, we're going to see God promised that there's going to be a battle. There's going to be enmity between the people of God and the people of Satan. There's going to be a narrative of conflict. Do you know where the battle begins? It begins right here in chapter 4. We're going to see the first skirmish. And the battle is on. And these two individuals in Cain and Abel, we're going to see represent two kingdoms and two pathways. And here we're going to see a conflict. In fact, the New Testament references, and this is so important, the New Testament references Cain and Abel on four occasions. I want to breeze through these very quickly, and then we're going to jump into chapter 4. But you need to see this because the New Testament's interpretation helps us understand the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. It helps us to understand it. So let's look very briefly. They're going to be on the screen. You'll want to jot these down. I tell everybody, don't take my word for it. Listen, I don't want to be a pastor who simply gives you the answers. And in fact, sometimes the, I'm giving you my interpretation of some of these things. I may be wrong. And there are scholars who have been studying this longer than me and are far smarter than me that disagree with me on my interpretation. So my prayer, listen, if you're not going home and what we're doing here doesn't cause you to want to go home and study it further and seek God in his word, then I've missed the mark, okay? I failed you as a pastor. So you need to go home. You need to study this for yourself. So jot these verses down. If you want to look at them this morning, you can. But I want to encourage you to study them further because we don't have time to go into them in depth, but you'll see them on the screen. The first is from Luke chapter 11, verses 49 through 50. Uh, let me look it up too. It'll be there on your screen. But in Luke Chapter 11, verses 49 through 50, it says there, uh, For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them will kill, and, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation." God or Jesus is speaking there to the Pharisees and he's condemning them and he's charging the blood of all these to them or to those who follow in their path. And really what he's saying here is Abel is the first martyr. That Abel is the first to stand on the truth of God's word, to believe in the promised seed of the woman and he will take a stand upon the truth and what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. Uh, so he says... Here's the first martyr, Abel, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Then secondly, let me show you Luke, or Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we all know this to be the hall of faith. The author of Hebrews, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. How did the men of old gain approval? He tells us right there, by what? By faith. He tells us right there, very simply. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what was seen, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Then verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. This is awesome. The author of Hebrews says Abel was a preacher. We've already heard that the blood of the prophets, Jesus called Abel a prophet. And he's still, what author of Hebrews says is he's still preaching to us today. And what is he preaching to us? Abel is preaching to us and testifying to us today that salvation comes by faith. He says, what made the difference? For by faith, 
Uh, Abel offered a better sacrifice. In fact, uh, verse 6 uh, down in, in Hebrews 11, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Uh, for anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, we know Abel pleased God. His offering, God regarded it, it pleased God. God smiled on his offering. And so the author of Hebrews says, we know uh, that on the basis of God's approval that he was a man of righteousness. And uh, he tells us it, was came, it came by means of faith. Then, then look also in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, uh, verse 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Now, nowhere in Scripture do we find both the children of God and the children of the devil mentioned in one verse, side by side. Right here you see it. John was the type of uh, preacher who didn't pull any punches. If you read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he tells it like it is. And here he says, here's the battle. Children of God, children of the devil. This is how we know them. He goes on to say, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor, uh, nor who does not love his brother. Now, he's not saying there that salvation comes by means of works. What he's saying is our works are a demonstration of whether or not we have faith and are counted as righteous. And so he goes on in verse 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. He says that Cain was of the evil one. And then we finally see in Jude, Jude right before the book of Revelation, Jude Verse 11 says, and Jude is written to the false prophets, false teachers. He says, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. Me, all those who have opposed God, these false teachers, they are in the pathway of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. If you know anything about Korah in the Old Testament, you don't want to be associated with them. And they went the way of Cain. So here, why do I bring up all those New Testament passages? Because I want you to see the New Testament writers saw very clearly and understood very clearly that Cain and Abel represented the originators of two pathways. So what you see in Cain and Abel, you have Cain who is of the evil one. And you're going to have Abel who is of God. And what we want to see is... What is it that made the difference? Two pathways, Cain and Abel. By the way, every one of us in this room this morning are on one of those two pathways. And there's no other pathway. So keep that in mind. Let's pray together, then we're going to look through uh, Genesis chapter 4. Father, we ask that you would, uh, God, you would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning to the truth of your word. God, I pray you would speak. Don't let me get in the way, Lord. Don't let me hinder the, just the truthfulness of your word. May it be very simple to us. May we see it plainly. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts and our lives. Help us to put aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice this morning. We need you, Lord. I need you. Speak to us today. I pray that if there's anybody here on the path of Cain, that, Lord, their eyes would be open to the truth of your word and the love of Christ, and they would be reborn today on the basis of faith. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Well, we look at verse one, chapter four. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she says, I've gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. So uh, here you have the first baby ever born. A lot of firsts we're going to see moving through here. The first child ever born. And if you have witnessed the birth of a child, you know that is divine. Amen. I don't know how anybody can see a child born and be an atheist, all right? It is divine. And, and, and we know, we stand in awe of that, and, and we're people who are somewhat familiar with birth. Can you imagine witnessing the first birth ever? And I believe that Adam and Eve were just in awe and wonder of what God had done. And I believe Eve is just giving credit to God. She's just worshiping God. She says, with the help of the Lord. God, look at what you did. You've been gracious to us. You've been kind to us. And you've given us a child. And, and I, I, I can't help but think that there was some kind of thought in their mind that this child was potentially the seed of the woman who would conquer Satan and bring them back into that previous relationship with God. And so maybe there's a sense of anticipation, a sense of hopefulness in this child. Well, then what do we see in verse 2? Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So now we have the first siblings, the first brothers and and you got Cain and you got Abel and they come from the same parents and yet they're going to have two very distinct personalities does that ever happen today you get two kids or more kids from the same mama and daddy and yet they can be completely different in their personalities and it's intended to be that way isn't that awesome that God creates diversity in this first family. They're going to have different likes and different passions. And that's good. That's to the glory of God. And so here you have Abel, and he's got to have an inclination to be a shepherd, more of a pastoral role. And you're going to have Cain, who's more agriculturally bent. He's going to be a farmer. It's to the glory of God. But the question we got to ask ourselves here is, at least to some extent, why do they need a shepherd? Why, why do they need a shepherd to keep watch over raising flocks? Why, why do they need that? Because what we know is, what most commentators believe, is that up to this point and moving forward from here, at least until later, they're going to be pretty much vegetarians. They're going to exist off plants. Now, praise God, later they're going to eat meat. Amen? I'm glad. But here, they're vegetarians. They don't, they're not raising animals to kill them and eat them. So the question then becomes, why do you need a shepherd? Well, I believe, and this is where some commentators will disagree with me, but I believe that Abel is raising sheep for sacrifice. Abel is raising sheep for sacrifice. In chapter 3, what did we see? In verse 21... God gives them a sign of the promise, doesn't he? And the sign of the promise was he killed, there's a sacrifice of an animal by which they make skins. God rejects their own attempts to cover their own shame and guilt, says the fig leaves aren't going to work. You're going to need my provision. 
and there's an animal that is killed. A sacrifice is made, and now sacrifice will become the sign of the promised child who will come. So we see this occur. Look with me at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock of their fat portions. So what we see here is God has instituted worship. And you say, how do we know that? Well, we know that because very clearly here, there's an appointed time for worship. It says, in the course of time. So apparently God has instructed them according to the appropriate time to come. And then there's an appropriate location because it says they brought it to the Lord. We don't know what the location was, and quite honestly, we don't know the time. But we know there was a time, and we know there was a location in which they brought offerings to God, or they brought sacrifice to God. And then we see, not only is there a time and a place, there's an appropriate means. There's an appropriate way by which they were supposed to come. We say, well, how do you know there's an appropriate way? Because we see something, don't we, at the end of uh, verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. How do we know there's an appropriate means? Because God says so. Because God says, Cain and his offering, no regard. Abel and his offering, that pleases me. I like that. God smiles on one doesn't smile on the other. And the question then becomes, what's the differentiating factor? Well, we've already got the answer to that from Hebrews chapter 11. Because Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrew tells us, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. Can I just give you a picture of what, I'm thinking, what I think is occurring here? And again, I prayed very specifically this week. If this is God, if this is not uh, your word, let it fall by the way. And there are some who would disagree with me in this. So I want to make that preference. But let me just tell you what I picture occurring here. I think what you've got here is God has instituted sacrifice as a sign of the promise. It's a reminder that salvation is only going to come by means of faith. We're not going to accomplish it on our own. It's not going to become by the work of our hands. We're going to have to trust God that he's going to send somebody because we're sinners. So you've got God instituting a means of sacrifice. You've got Abel raising sheep for sacrifice. And you've got Cain. Now, who is Cain? Cain is the firstborn. And we're going to talk about this family because if you picture this family as just Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, I think that's an inaccurate picture. They're going to grow very rapidly. But Cain is the firstborn, and he's got a position of prominence. Can you imagine how prominent? He's the firstborn of all the babies of the world. I mean, he's, he's the firstborn and probably pictured in many ways as the leader. Oftentimes, if you've got a firstborn in your house, oftentimes the firstborn has a tendency to be a leader. And oftentimes a firstborn has kind of that type A personality. This morning I said that, and I got some scowls like I was being critical of firstborns. I'm not, maybe, but I see a lot of times that... that <laughs> I'm going to leave that alone. I, all right, so, so you've got, you got, you got Cain here. He's the firstborn. He's got a position of prominence. Probably everybody came to him in a lot of ways for advice. He, he's taught by dad how to till the ground and probably a lot of people. He's probably one of the best farmers around. And so here, is, here he is, he's got a position of prominence, but when it comes to sacrifice, where does he have to go? He's got to go over to Abel. And I just can't help but wonder over the course of time if Cain didn't start thinking to himself, why in the world i got to go to Abel? 
I don't have to get in line like the rest of these hoodlums and go over to him. Abel's no better than me. And I'm the best farmer around. There's nobody that farms better than me. Maybe Cain begins to think in his mind, you know what, I know God said it's a means of sacrifice, but I think God will be impressed with my grain. And so Cain puts together the best of his grain and maybe puts together a large portion and he thinks he's going to bring it to God and God's going to somehow be impressed with him. And what do we learn very quick, quickly? God's not impressed. Because listen to me this morning. God has only appointed one means of salvation. This is a powerful picture, good reminder. Regardless of whether or not you agree with me on all those things, the differentiating factor, almost all will agree, was faith. And what God is saying to all of us this morning is that when it comes to approaching God, you don't get to pick and choose how you come. When it comes to coming before God in a way that pleases Him, it's not like Jesus is one of a whole bunch of ways in a smorgasbord of all the ways to get to God. And you just pick the one that best suits you. No, God says there's only one way that I acknowledge. And that is by faith in the seed of the woman that I promised would come. And Abel is willing to admit that I'm a sinner and I'm going to trust in the promised seed and as a sign of my faith, I'll make sacrifice that somebody's going to come and die for me. And Cain, on the other hand, is going to bow his neck to God and say, I don't want to come by means of faith. I want to come by means of the works of my hands. And God says, it doesn't work that way. Now, how do you think Cain is going to respond to this? Well, we see very clearly at the end of verse 5, Cain became what? Very angry. He's ticked off. He's offended. You're telling me, boy, nobody brings in grain better than me. You're telling me all this stuff holds no weight with you, God? And he's offended that he would have to humble himself and get in line with everybody else and come to God on the basis of faith. And listen, the gospel and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone as the only means of salvation, that gospel message is no less offensive today than it was back then. See, if you're here this morning and you think you're somehow going to get your way to God on the basis of your good works, if you have spent your life doing a whole bunch of good works, hoping that you're going to earn favor with God, and you've been doing all this stuff and checking all these boxes, and as you do it, you're starting to get, look at me. Ah, look at what I've accomplished. Look at who I am. And you somehow think, that your good works are going to impress God and somebody comes to you and says all of your righteous works are like filthy rags in the presence of God when it comes to your salvation. That holds no weight with God. In fact, and if you want to know God's salvation, you've got to admit you're a sinner and you can't achieve salvation on your own. If you've been spending your life trying to earn favor with God and you hear that message, you're probably going to be offended too. 
To be told that all my good works are fool's gold, they're confederate money, they hold no real value when it comes to my salvation, and to admit that I'm a sinner to so many people, that is offensive. To the proud, it's offensive. To those who know they're sinners and know they've, only, they've got no hope of salvation, the message of Jesus Christ who has come and done all the work for us, that's a pretty good message, amen. But to those who are perishing, those who are prideful, it's an offensive message. And Cain is offended. And his countenance fell. Now, now what is God going to do? To me, this is a powerful picture, though. What is God going to do? Is God going to say to Cain, well, you rejected, you bowed your neck to me, you're done. Kick him out, whatever. No, what do we see God do in verse 6? What does God do? It says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? God goes to Cain in this awesome, just like he did with Adam and Eve, who sinned. Here you got Cain kind of bowing his neck to God, saying, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I think I can come to you, not on the basis of faith, but on the basis of my good works. And God doesn't give up on him. Any of you here today grateful God didn't give up on you? And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? You know what he's trying to get Cain to do? He's trying to get Cain to admit that he's a sinner, just like he was trying to get Adam and Eve to admit their sin. Because the answer to those, both of those questions, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Why is he mad? Because he's a sinner and he doesn't want to admit it. And so God here is trying to get him to, to come out in the light, admit who you are. But then God says to him, says in verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and it's desires for you, but you must master it. He's telling Cain, listen, this is powerful. God is pleading. This is really, if you want to think about it this way, this is the first evangelistic conversation in all of God's word. And it's the person of God talking to Cain and saying, Cain, if you do well, what does he mean there? He's saying to him, Cain, if you will humble yourself and trust in me, will not your countenance be lifted up? How many of you can testify that when you bend the knee to Jesus Christ and admit you're a sinner, that there is a freedom, there is a forgiveness, there is a burden of sin that is lifted, and there's the confident expectation that you're going to heaven and you become the most joyful person on the face of the planet. Amen. He's saying to Cain, if you will humble yourself, if you'll trust in me, if you do well, your countenance will be lifted right now. You're angry, you're bitter, but by means of humility, I'll raise you up, even as Paul says in Ephesians. And he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You can be lifted up, but salvation comes by means of humility. You've got to admit you're a sinner, Cain. And then he warns him, he's, there's a stern warning him, but if you do not do well, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and his desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain, you can't just tread water. You can't remain neutral. Sin will eat you alive and it will drag you down to destruction. It's a powerful warning. God is telling Cain, you got a choice to make today. You're either going to turn and change your ways, Cain. You're going to do well instead of doing not well. You're either going to change your ways and follow me, or you are headed down a path that leads to destruction. Sin will eat you alive and destroy your life. Isn't that a powerful evangelistic message? 
And which way is Cain going to go? Well, we find out very quickly in verse 8. Cain told his brother. It came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. We're going to talk more about that next week, but, but you see the picture here. You start out chapter 4, and there's so much potential in Cain, isn't there? He could be the promised one. And then eight verses later, he's a murderer. Why? Because he wouldn't bend the knee, humble himself, admit he's sinner, and trust in the only means of salvation, which was the promised seed of the woman. Cain and Abel, two paths, folks, two paths. Cain, the one who says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I think I'm good enough to get to God on my own. I can do it my own way. I don't need faith. And Abel, who's willing to admit he's a sinner and trust in God. One is a way that leads to death, eternal death and destruction. And one, while it may lead to physical death, leads to eternal life. And everybody in this room, you're on one of those two paths this morning. One day you're going to stand before God. One day you're going to be there. And if God asks you, just think of it this morning. If God were to ask you today, why in the world should I allow you into my kingdom? You need to think about that right now. If something happens to you today and God says, why should I allow you into my kingdom? What is your response? Listen to me. If you start listing out your moral resume of all the good things you've done, if your immediate thought is, well, I've been to church. I tried to be a good person. I've done these things. I've gone these places. If that's your response, can I tell you this morning, you're following the path of Cain. Because you think you're going to be able to get to God on your own. Every one of us, when we are born, you ever been to the airport and those moving sidewalks? You've seen those moving sidewalks at the airport? Love those things. You get on one of those moving sidewalks, it starts taking a direction. Every one of us, when we are born, we're born on a moving sidewalk headed towards hell. Did you know that? We've all been affected by the sin of Adam and Eve. We are born sinners. And we're on a moving sidewalk. In fact, Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience. Do you know if you're, when you're born, you're on a path, a moving sidewalk headed towards hell, and who is leading that path? Satan. You may not say it that way. Certainly most people wouldn't say, Well, I'm following Satan. But if you haven't trusted in Christ, you're born on a path headed towards destruction. Now, can a person be on that path and occasionally step off and do some good things? Sure, sure they can. We look at the world all the time. You see people who have completely thumbed their nose at God and yet occasionally they do some good work. And can sinners who are destined for hell still do some good work from time to time? Certainly they can. But the overall trajectory of their life is towards what? Destruction. The only way to get off this moving sidewalk, the only means of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. The only way for me to get off this path is at some point or another to recognize and admit that I am a sinner and I can't save myself no matter how good I do. My best works on my best day are like filthy rags in comparison to the holiness of God. There's no way I'm getting to him on my own. I get so angry. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? Listen, the question of Scripture is how can a bunch of sinners like us ever get to God? 
And the only means for me to get off this path is to place my faith in Christ. I placed my faith in Christ, I trusted him, and I changed the direction of my life. What do we call that? Repentance. And I'm born again by the Spirit of God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ for by grace you've been saved and he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places do you know why Paul speaks in the past tense right there because he says when you've placed your faith in Christ when you become reborn by the by the spirit of God your eternal destination is so secure we can talk about it in the past tense isn't that good and you get on a new path a path that's headed towards life And the Spirit of God is alive in you and forming your life more and more to the image of Christ and leading you to your home in heaven. Now, when you're on this path, can you occasionally step off and do some knuckle-headed sinful things? Oh, you bet we can. But if you're on this path by means of faith, the overall trajectory of your life is going to be towards Christ. There are only two paths this morning. The path of Cain, the path of Abel. The path of trusting in yourself or the path of knowing, the path of knowing that you're a sinner and trusting in Jesus Christ. And there's only one way that God regards. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Father but through me. In Acts 4.12, it says, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. But if you will not bend the knee and admit you're a sinner and trust in Christ, I'm telling you today, there's a way that seems right unto man, but in the end leads to destruction. You are playing with fire. You can't just tread water. If you will not turn, you're floating down a path that leads to eternal destruction. Which path are you on today? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that makes so clear to us these two paths. And I love this, God. We see your heart in this passage passage that, that you desire none to perish. But your heart is that all would come to faith, all would repent of their sins, all would turn to you. And God, I pray if there's anybody here today that's never trusted in your son, Jesus, God, I pray that they would see the depth of their sin today. That there's no way they're going to get to you on the basis of their good works. God, I pray uh, we struggle with pride. God, I pray today they would humble themselves in a recognition that they're a sinner. And they would trust in you as the only means of salvation. They'd change the direction of their life by means of faith. And God, you would begin a good work in them. You'd cause them to be reborn by the Spirit of God and set them down a new path and a path that leads to life. God, I pray that they would know today if they'll humble themselves, will not their countenance be lifted up? There is joy in Jesus. Not joy as this world knows it. Not a temporary fleeting happiness. But the joy of Christ awaits them if they'll trust in you. God, I pray that they would trust in you. God, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we go out into this world and we tell people there's two paths. God, give us boldness and courage to tell people that there's only one means of salvation. We know the world doesn't like this message. They're offended by it. They don't mind any other message. They don't mind messages that pat people on the back and tell them they're good people. 
but they are offended by this message that tells people, no, you're not good. You're a sinner. And your only means of salvation is Jesus. And regardless of how this world responds, and regardless of the fact that one will be persecuted, we see it right here in Abel. He stood for the truth and he died. But God, let us be faithful. Regardless of how the world responds, let us be faithful to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and faith in him alone is the only means of salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way God might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. There'll be pastors here at the front. Love to talk with you. Love to pray with you. This is your time. Know this morning you will never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.